of those things that's hard to, to know how to speak to people about, isn't it? What do you say uh, to somebody who's got cancer? And I know that many people have uh, actually refrained from saying anything for fear of saying the wrong thing. Uh, just a little tip, uh, don't worry about putting your foot in your mouth. Uh, it's really good for people to speak up and to be there and to love others. Uh, even if you end up saying something that's really quite awkward. And I can tell you plenty of awkward things that people have had to, had to say to me. Uh, but one of the really awkward things um, that I hear often, and it, it doesn't actually worry me anymore, uh, is people saying, so what's the prognosis? And by that, really, what they're wanting uh, you to say is, how long have you got left to live? And uh, I, I've heard that in various ways over the last few weeks. And... There was one particular lady who, who didn't ask that question. She just simply said, so how long have you got to live? And I thought that must be about the, the bravest and clunkiest question I've ever been asked. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, by the way, and God hasn't actually told me. But I have come to the understanding over a number of years that I don't know, but God does. And there's nothing that I can do to change that. But I need to reflect on that reality. And one of the ways that I've sought to reflect on that reality over the last few years is to keep coming back to this psalm, to Psalm 90. And I'd encourage you to have it open, uh, keep your Bibles open. We'll, we'll dip into it. Uh, you can see I've got a very detailed outline uh, inside uh, your handouts. If you are somebody who likes to write notes, uh, I'll try and give you some tips along the way. But just scribble down whatever you want. Uh, that's my first tip. Um, it's fascinating, this idea of time, though, isn't it? And, and particularly in relation to sport. Uh, I, I love sport. I used to love playing sport. I now love watching sport. And sport's something that is very time-defined. Uh, we're, we're coming up to the Olympics again. You know, everyone's kind of uh, getting prepared for these, these big events that take place. Uh, and one of the events that's really quite extraordinary when you think about it uh, is the 100 metres uh, running sprint. Because people train for four years, they spend large amounts of time every day to spend the shortest amount of time possible that they can on the racetrack. And it will come down to literally a one one-hundredth of a second difference. And so you have this massive amount of time that's put into something that is gone before you can even blink. And you can imagine, can't you, some uh, relative who's uh, spent huge amounts of money and they've been invested in, in, in their loved one preparing for this event, just busting to go to the toilet. Um, they, they race out to go to the toilet and they come back and the 100 metres final, it's already finished. And, and they miss their son after all of that hard work. Uh, well, when you've got clarity about time, it kind of focuses the mind. Uh, how many of you are, are students or have been students recently? Quite a few of you. There's, there's this thing, really. It's called the exam period. And the exam period focuses the mind, does it not? I, I used to learn incredible things in exam periods. I had a whole year to have fun and occasionally go along to lectures and, and 
and, and hang out with the other people who were in the same course, having fun, occasionally going to lectures. But come exam period, you actually learn something in the subject. Uh, and if you don't learn something in the subject, then you'll turn up at that exam and you'll have to do a whole year again. And I had one friend who did fourth year medicine four times because he wasn't focused on that exam period. He filled his year with other things. Or perhaps if you're out in the workforce, there's something that focuses uh, your thinking when it comes to money, isn't it? It's called tax time. Uh, and all of a sudden, you've got to work out what it is that you've spent, what it is that you've earned. Uh, and you realise that there's a little bit of an imbalance along the way somewhere. And uh, we got a shock, actually, it's all my fault, but uh, we got a shock last year when we discovered that we thought, uh, well, I thought we'd been earning a lot of extra money for the previous 18 months, but we just hadn't been paying any tax on it. And we suddenly got a bill for $50,000 for two years of unpaid taxes. You see, there's something about being called to account where there's a time that you need to give an account for what you've been doing and not been doing that sharpens the focus. Well, this is a psalm that talks about the nature of time and it, indeed it, it really sharpens our focus as to what the nature of our lives is about. Have a look with me at some of the verses that, that are <coughs> pardon me, giving us a perspective on time. Now, first of all, this is a psalm of Moses, the man of God, and it's a psalm of faith because he talks about the Lord who has been his dwelling place through all generations. But let's look at these time references. So down in verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. So we learn something here about the difference between God and mankind. With God, a thousand years are like a day and a night. I mean, in God's eternal purposes, in God's very, very big picture, uh, we are just something that comes and goes. We are, we are just quickly here and we are quickly gone. And he talks about, in verse 3, people returning to dust. We're mere mortals. So we have the eternal God who oversees all things for all time. And we have human beings who come and they're quickly gone. Or down in uh, verse 6, in the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. Or down in verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. And then this specific reference in verse 10, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away again. And finally, in verse 12, teach us to number our days. So of, of all of the Psalms, this one particularly focuses on the nature of time and the nature of time that we've got. And it talks about the life expectation, doesn't it? 70 years or perhaps 80 if we're strong. Now, bear in mind, this was written uh, at the time of Moses. Moses lived to a pretty good age. Not as good as the people right back at the beginning of Genesis, like Methuselah, who was pushing uh, uh, a thousand years before he passed away. 
But the reality is life expectancy from that time until now in the healthiest of circumstances has pretty much been around the 70 to 80 kind of uh, life expectancy, hasn't it? Indeed, uh, Australian statistics can tell you that the life expectancy for a man in Australia is 79 years. The life expectancy for a woman in Australia, however, is 84 years. Five years of difference there. That could be why uh, my eldest son married a woman who's six years older than him so that they can spend most of their days together. <laughs> All right? Now, sometimes people live longer. I was uh, in Brisbane just last week and I was sharing at an outreach event for uh, a bunch of primarily ladies uh, on a Tuesday morning at a church. And as I looked around, I thought, yeah, they're pretty much all retired. They've pretty much reached their latter days. And I suspect that they were mainly women because most of them had already lost their husbands, the women living a little bit longer. And then one woman got up to thank me for coming and talking. And I discovered that she was 80 years of age. She turned 80 last year. But then the extraordinary thing was she had brought her mum to the event. Her mum was 102. Now that's pretty exciting, isn't it? To actually pass over the tonne, to actually make it to 100 and uh, being a, a, a part of the British Empire in Australia, people, I understand, still get letters from the Queen if they make it to 100. In fact, the person who took over as the, the pastor of the church that I led in Canberra, a guy called Marcus Reeves, his grandmother was the oldest woman in Canberra and may well have been in Australia, I don't know. She lived to just before her 108th birthday. But that's about it, all right? You can push it to the extremes. Some people will make 100. Most people will make it into their 80s. Some people won't live that long and you'll get a spread, a range. But we do not live forever. And friends, we need to realise the harsh reality of that. We're not going to live forever. We won't go on in this world, in this life, living forever. God has made it to be that way. By the way, I think that's a good thing because the older we get, the sicker we get, the frailer we get, and the more we know that we cannot cope in this life. But the younger we are, the fitter we are, the more expectations for the future that we have, the more danger is that we don't factor in the reality of our own mortality. I, I can tell you the case that back in 2011, uh, I, together with my wife and a couple of our children and a bunch of other people, families from around Canberra and other parts of Australia, are looking forward to a new beginning. We're planning to move from Canberra, where we live, to Darwin. We're going to move to a new house, a new place, to new jobs, to plant a new church. And we had a whole future expectation ahead of us. And then I'm diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And what I thought was probably a midlife crisis, you know, here I am at the age of 49, thinking about what I'm going to do, say, for the next 20 years, the next 30 years, all of a sudden it becomes an end of life crisis. I'm being told that I probably won't live for another 12 months. You see, 
it often takes things of that severity to remind us of the truth that we will not go on forever and forever. The younger we are, the fitter we are, the more we think we'll always be able to do whatever we want to do. And I think the nature of a midlife crisis is realising that you've, you've kind of got over halfway through your life and you haven't got close to doing half the things you wanted to do and you've now experienced the, the fittest, most active period of your life. It's only going to go downhill from this point on, so you've got no chance of achieving what you want to achieve. And so you have a midlife crisis. Well, friends, let me tell you, a midlife crisis is a good thing to have. And I want to suggest that you don't wait until midlife to have it. Have it now. You might already be past midlife, and you won't know if you are, will you? I guess if you're over 50, there's a pretty good guess. But, but for, for, we don't know what our days are, but realise this, that they're not forever. Now, there's nothing particularly biblically profound about what I've said yet, is there? I, I'm saying you're not going to live forever. Well, duh. You know, what is the death rate in Australia? Exactly the same as it was last year. It's 100%, Right? I'm not saying anything that, that the Australian Bureau of Statistics couldn't tell you and I'm not telling you anything that funeral directors are not delighted by. They're never going to go out of business, right? You, you want a job where you're guaranteed a future? Become a funeral director. Because no matter what fashions and trends come and go, death will always be in. Now, you might think I'm being a little bit flippant here and, and a little bit casual about something that's so significant. I'm doing that because that's the way we live. We live as though that is not true. But it's not something that we need the Bible to tell us. What we need the Bible to tell us is why. Why will we not live forever? Why are our days numbered? Why do we come and go from morning to night? Why is it? And the Bible in this passage gives us reasons. Have a look at some of the language that gets used here. Verse 7. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. Verse 9. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Verse 11. If only we knew the power of your anger... Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. You see, the, the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics, can tell us that we're going to die, but it can't tell us why the Bible does. It tells us that death comes about because God is angry with us. Look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Now, we don't have time to go into all of the background of this, but the Bible's picture is very clear when it comes to the reason for death. God said to the man and the woman in the garden that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they would die. The devil said, ah, you're not going to die. That's not going to happen. You know, you'll, you'll be right. You'll go on. You'll live forever. God knows God's... He's kind of, you know, deceiving you here. But the one deceiving was the deceiver, was the serpent. And they ate from that. 
and they were cast out of the garden and they became mortal. They died. Not straight away, but it did happen. And it has happened again and again and again and again. Now, there are two exceptions. There are a little... A little unusual in the Bible, there's a guy called Enoch who walked with God and then he was no more. There's a guy called Elijah who was taken in a chariot to heaven. But other than those two, as far as I can see reading through the scriptures, everyone dies. Because everyone is guilty of turning their back upon God. That's sin. And God therefore is angry with us because of our sin and the promised judgment for that sin is that we will die. Of course, it's not simply death, it's death and judgment. The Bible calls it the second death, being the death of judgment. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it says that it's appointed for people to die once and after that to face judgment. Jesus himself in Matthew says, Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, death is a serious event on our calendar. We may not know when, but we can know why. It's because God is angry with us for turning our back upon him. And because of that, there will be death and there will be judgment. And we need to reckon on those things, friends. Two sobering facts that most people choose to ignore. They ignore the fact that one day they will die. And even more seriously, they ignore the fact that after death, they will face judgment. And I'm opening this psalm, being reminded of this, as are you. Factor this into your plans. Put this in your diary. You might be wondering, what day should I put it into my diary? It's not about what day. It's about reckoning on this reality. Put it on every day, if you like. How should we respond then? Well, I take it not by living as though we have all the time in the world. Not by living as though we have all the time in the world. And Moses responds in prayer to God. And I want to highlight his three petitions. Because I think as we look at these petitions, we gain an insight into how to live in the light of our mortality and how to live in the light of the judgment of God to come. And so, the first of those is verse 12, teach us to number our days. The second, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. The third, in verse 17, establish the work of our hands for us. Let's take each of these in turn. First of all, teach us to number our days, verse 12, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What does he mean there, teach us to number our days? When I first looked at this, I, I kind of had in mind that, that cartoon picture of someone in a prison cell. And, you know, they've got their, their, they've got their stick or their stone or, or, or their fork or whatever, and they're, they're scratching another day off on the wall of the prison cell and crossing it out. And, and they're working down their sentence 
problem is you can't work down your sentence because you don't know. But do know this. What is it to number our days? Well, I think it's to recognise that our days are numbered and therefore to make every day count. To, to actually number our days is to take seriously every day that God gives us as a gift from him. Stewardship. We use the word stewardship, don't we, about, about money. Do you use that language here in this church from time to time? We want to be stewards of the money that God gives us. Here's another way of thinking about it. Be stewards of your days. God has given you days. Be stewards of those days. Use those days in the way God would have you use those days. What does that mean then, to number your days? Well, let me give you some suggestions here. Lord, teach me to value every day, every week, every month, every year. Make that your prayer. Lord, teach me to appreciate that I have a life to live for you. And there are a number of things that will flow from that, won't you? There will be a recognition of the brevity of life. This psalm just drips with that theme. God, a thousand years are like a day. For us, it's like morning and evening. In another part of the scriptures, it says that we're like that kind of grass that grows up and then the hot wind blows it away, dust, and we're gone. Our days are short. Therefore, focus on the brevity. And in the same way that that exam period makes relevant what you choose to spend your time on, factor in the fact that you're going to die one day and face judgment and that should factor in shaping the way that you live your life. Brevity. Secondly, I think it's important that we live each day as though it might be our last now, we need to be careful with that one, don't we? Because it's, if you knew that this was your last day, you might do nothing. You might be tempted to think, what's the point? So you, you want to live each day as though it's your last, but assuming that it's not, if, that, if that, that makes any sense. That is, there's an urgency about the time because it might be your last day. So don't put off something that is critically important. I'll give you an example of this that took place for me yesterday. A friend from Canberra, her, her, um, uh, her, her, she and her brother became Christians in our ministry back in 1990. Uh, their mother became a Christian about three years ago in the months before she died. Their father is in hospital in critical care at the moment and expected to go at any time. And... They're not sure where he's at with God. They asked if he would be happy to talk to me on the telephone. And so we lined up a call at uh, 10.30 yesterday morning and I spoke to him. It was a very different phone call from your typical phone call. The typical phone call might be, how are you doing? Um, how's the weather? Uh, what do you think of the Raiders' chances of, uh, of winning the premiership this year? Uh, you got any plans for the holidays? How's work? No, sorry, how's, how's retirement? That might be the typical conversation, but numbering your days kind of brought a very pointed focus to the conversation. And I found myself moving very, very quickly to say, 
How do, you think, how do you think things are between you and God? Not too good, he said. Do you feel like you've come to the point where you're at peace with God? No, not yet, he said. You see, if you put off things that are important like that, then you may not get the opportunity. Live each day as though it's your last. That is... Focus on the things that matter most. Because if we always dally with those things, we'll come a day when we won't have time for any of them. I think also it reminds us that we need to have a certain humility with our planning. I like to put it this way now. Make your plans in pencil, not in pen. See, we thought that we were headed to Darwin to plant a new church. And we had no idea that I was entered into a serious cancer diagnosis where I would not be able to do any of those things. In fact, thought I couldn't do much at all. We can make plans, can't we? But, but God is the one who fundamentally plans our steps. It's important that we make plans. The Bible calls us to do that. But it reminds us that God is the one who will actually shape our path. And I was uh, pointed very quickly after these things happened to James chapter 4, where, where it says, those of you who say, I'm going to go to this city and start up a business and make money and, and do this and do that, hey, you don't even know what you are. You're just a mist or a vapour. <sighs> and then you're gone. Instead, you should say, it says, if it is God's will, I will do this or do that. And I found myself, in a very genuine way, entering the language of God willing into my speech, into my conversation. I'm headed to a conference tomorrow, God willing. I'm hoping to catch up with some people, God willing. My plans are that I'll come and, and uh, visit this church again sometime, God willing. You see, numbering our days is a recognition that God is the one who has set our days in place. Every day should be a holiday. That sounds good. But you know what a holiday is? It's literally a holy day. That's where it comes from. Every day should be a day for the Lord. Uh, what can I do for you today, God, day? Every day should be shaped by prayer, asking the one who gives us the day, to enable us to use the day for his sake, to make it holy. We should learn about God and, and how to fill our time, what to make a priority by looking at his word. And then lastly, under numbering our days, I do want to say to you that I think it's hard when it's open-ended. It's hard to be focused and clear and purposeful when it's open-ended. God has given us a limited time so that we might make priorities. There are 24 hours in a day for a reason. Seven days in a week for a reason. 30 days in a month on average for a reason. 12 months in a year for a reason. That is... If we had all the time in the world, nothing would matter. 
Nothing. You'd be able to get around to everything when you felt like it. But because days are short, weeks are short, months are short, years are short, and lives are short, then we must make priorities, we must choose, and do what matters matter. So let's pray God teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. That's his first prayer. The second, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds, and, and we'll go on to that next. It's interesting, isn't it? Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And then look at the character of the days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen trouble. Please, God, make me happy for the miserable life that I live. Kind of sounds a little bit like that, but isn't there a dose of reality there? Isn't it true that there's tough things in life? Hands up if you've ever broken a bone. Okay, a few of you. The rest of you should get a life, all right? <laughs> you've been mollycoddled in cotton wool for too long. You need to break a bone. You need to get out there and you need to do something because pain actually is the essence of life in a world that has been subjected to frustration. There's sickness, there's tragedy, there's suffering, there's depression. There's broken relationships, and that is life. And we're encouraged to gratitude. We're encouraged to be satisfied by God's unfailing love. And there's an extraordinary wisdom in that, isn't there? Because we live in a world that tries to be satisfied by everything at our disposal. See, the the secular prayer is this, Lord, satisfy me by my work, by, by, by the incredible things that I can achieve. Satisfy me by my relationships, that everything might be, might be intensely intimate, that, that we might experience the wonder of passionate love all the time. Lord, satisfy me by a bigger income. Satisfy me by world travel. Satisfy me by the latest car or motorcycle. Satisfy me by... And we're looking to our circumstances to make value in our lives. But they won't. And they don't. Now, what will satisfy us in the morning and the night is God's unfailing love. So, Father, fill me with an understanding, a deep and wide understanding, grasp of your unfailing love for me. And where do I see that? Where do you see the unfailing love of God? Try looking outside Jerusalem on a hill, on a cross where Jesus, the Son of God, is giving up his life for you. That's where you see God's unfailing love. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his one and only son to be a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. That is love. Lord, may we be satisfied by your unfailing love. The problem is we live lives where we grumble and complain. The problem is that we look around about to other things and experiences to find satisfaction and we fail. As the rest of our world fails. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy good relationships. That's a wonderful gift from God when we do. Doesn't mean we can't find satisfaction in our work. It's a wonderful gift from God when we do. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy a, a holiday. Doesn't mean you can't in, enjoy a home. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy possessions. But that's not where satisfaction comes from, friends. Knowing the satisfying, unfailing love of God. That's how we should pray. Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And it's that that will enable us to live lives of joy and gratitude in the face of suffering. Thirdly, verse 17, May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's an interesting one, this one, isn't it? Because it's a prayer to make our lives count, in particular, to make our work count. Lord, establish the work of my hands, of our hands. What is the work that's on view here? Is it, is it the work that I do in the office, that I do at the university? Is it the work that I do in my, in my home, in my family? What is the work that's on view? What's he getting at here? Well, we need to remember the context. Come back to verse 16. May your deeds or your work be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us. Then he says, establish the work of our hands and repeats it. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I think we need to grasp that, that it's a prayer that God will establish our work in the context of his work. That is, it's God's deeds that are to be shown. It's his splendour that is to be demonstrated to their children. It's God's favour that is to rest on us. And in the context of this, we pray that God will establish the work of our hands. See, if the work of our hands is to run in the opposite direction to God and God's work, th then it's a sinful prayer, is it not? But if we grasp the context of God's work and what God's doing, and we are making our lives, our days count, and we're grateful to God for his unfailing love, then what we do, what we work at in the context of his work that's what he is to establish. Now, there's an important verse, I think, in this regard. And it's a verse that makes sense against the backdrop of the Old Testament. So the verse is the last verse in 1 Corinthians 15, which says uh, that your work in the Lord is not in vain. It's not vanity. 
It's not meaningless. Now, that verse is to be understood in the backdrop, against the backdrop of Ecclesiastes. You read Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament? Uh, what does it say about work? Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or in the older translations, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. That is, life under the sun, lived for work, is meaningless. Because you'll work to build a bridge, and then your country will go to war, and the bridge will be bombed, and your whole work will be destroyed. Or you'll work to build a business, and you'll hand it on to your children, and they'll be disinterested in the business, sell it off, and go and spend their money on something else. See, for everything that is done, it gets undone. And that makes things meaningless. And, and the key thing in the book of Ecclesiastes that makes things meaningless is death. It's the fact that you will die that makes every achievement in life meaningless. And that's why it's so powerful to see the opposite in 1 Corinthians 15. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is all about rescue from death. It's all about not only dying, but being raised from the dead. And so it talks about a work that is not meaningless, that's not vanity, that will not be destroyed by death itself. And that is the work that endures into the resurrection. So that is your labour that is not meaningless. That is your work that is not in vain. Are you at work for something that will last for eternity? That's a question to ask yourself. That's not rhetorical. Are you at work for something which will last for eternity? Now, I, I thought when I retired, I might become a barrister. You know, those guys with vans that make coffees for people? I thought that's what I'd do. Right? Um, but making coffees for people is not really likely to prepare them for eternity. Now, it, it can be a good thing to do. It could be a good job to do. It could be a fun thing to do. It could open up opportunities for relationships. It could build connections. It could connect with me with people to the point where we start to talk about life and death matters, where I'm able to push into things of more significance, where I can talk about God, Jesus, dying and being raised from the dead. Now, my work as a barrister, sorry, I won't be silly, as a barista, could well enable a work of the Lord, right? Making coffees, well, that's important. I can't start the day without one. I thank God for all the baristas. But the work of the Lord, that endures forever. And I suspect that to fully understand what's being said here in verse 17, under the words of Moses that he wants his work to be established by God for his work is involved in rescuing the people of God and bringing them to the promised land. And you know the wonderful thing? Every Christian, every member of the disciple-making trainee squad, which is all of you, by the way, even if you haven't turned up yet, can be a work of the Lord, can be a work for all eternity. So let's pray 
in the light of our mortality, in the light of the coming judgment of our God, and especially in the light of the unfailing love of God in the gospel, that we will number our days, that we'll find satisfaction in God's unfailing love, and that God will establish the work that we do for him for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for Moses' spirit-inspired words that help us now, uh, millenniums later, to reflect on the brevity of our lives, the absolute reality of our mortality, our impending deaths and judgment to live lives here and now that are significant. Significant because you make them significant. Please, may we number our days. May we be satisfied with your unfailing love. And please establish the work of our hands in keeping with your work, we pray. Amen. Amen. 特别欢迎第一次到我们教会的朋友，让我们在开始的时候先一同来到神的面前祈祷。天父，我们感谢你，谢谢你赐给我们你的话。草必枯干，花必凋谢，唯有神的道永远长存。求神在我们中间打开我们的眼睛，叫我们能够明白你的话。听我们祷告，奉主耶稣名字，阿门。有一个。盲人，他呢因为看不见，所以呢常常随声的附和。有一次，一伙人就坐在啊、呃、这个院子里面，当时呢是已经是黄昏了。那么有两个孩子在玩这个墨汁，玩的时候呢，一个孩子就把另外一个孩子的脸上涂成了一个大花脸，众人看见了就觉得非常的好笑。就哈哈的大笑，这个盲人他觉得说大家都在笑的事情一定很好笑，所以他也跟着笑。然后别的人问他说：“你为什么笑呢？”他说：“我看到你们笑，所以我也就笑了。”这个故事，这个寓言的故事，他讲的就是一个人看不见，但是呢，他也不想落单。在这个故事里面的这个盲人，其实是一个啊。呃虽然说别人笑他，但其实他是一个很可怜的人，因为他看不见。约翰的约翰福音里面，在第一章里面这样的讲到耶稣的时候，就说：“那光是真光，照亮一切生在世上的人。”光对盲人有没有用？假如世上的人都是盲人，就算耶稣的光比太阳还要强，我们都感知不到。盲人生活在黑暗中间。有光没有光，对他来说没有区别，除非盲人的眼睛得到医治，然后他才能够看见。第八章里面，我们前面读到说，耶稣他自己说他是世界的光，跟从他的就不在黑暗里走。但是第九章就给我们看到了一个生来瞎眼的人，这个人是一个生来瞎眼的。所以他从来没有看到过光
当他看到这个人的时候呢，门徒就问耶稣，他们问他说：“拉比，这人生来是瞎眼的，是谁犯了罪？是这人呢？是他父母呢？”耶稣回答说：“也不是这人犯了罪，也不是他父母犯了罪，是要在他身上显出神的作为来。”在这里面，其实门徒跟耶稣的对话。是在讨论罪和疾病、苦难之间的关系。疾病和苦难的最终原因是罪恶，所以罗马书五章十二节这样说：“这这就如罪是从一人入了世界，死又是从罪来的，于是死就临到众人，因为众人都犯了罪。”所以圣经给我们看到一个很清晰的图片：疾病、苦难。和罪恶，它是有最终联系的。所有的问题的最终极原因都是罪恶，但是疾病、苦难与罪恶之间，在每个个别的人身上是没有直接因果关系的。有些人罪恶多端，但是呢，一生享福；有些人恒心行善，却经历很多的苦难。所以，放在每个个别的个体的身上，它是没有直接对应的关系的。约伯的三个朋友，在他们和约伯的对话里面告诉我们，他们其实就犯了一个与一个错误。他们认为疾病、苦难和罪恶之间是有直接的因果关系。约伯，你之所以有这些苦难，是因为你犯罪了。就算你没有犯罪，也一定是你的孩子犯罪了。所以门徒问这个问题，是因为他们也有这种直接的因果报应的。这种理念在他们的里面，但是耶稣回答说：“不是这人犯了罪，也不是他父母犯了罪。”所以他否定了这种过于简单的因果报应关系。同时，当一个受苦的人来到耶稣的面前的时候，他也不需要思考自己的苦难是不是报应的。任何人，无论你有什么苦，当你来到耶稣的面前。你不需要考虑说你现在所受的苦是不是因为过去的罪恶。当人来到耶稣的面前，耶稣说他要在他的身上显出神的作为来。后来耶稣就让这个人去了一个地方，耶稣说了这话，就吐唾沫在他在地上，用唾沫和泥抹在瞎子的眼睛上，对他说：“你往希罗亚池子里去洗。”希罗亚翻出来，翻译出来就是奉差遣的意思。他去一洗，就回头就看见了。在这里面就讲了耶稣行的一个神迹，他用泥和他的唾沫抹了，做成了一个呃一个泥饼，然后抹在他的眼睛上面，然后对他说：“你去希罗亚的池子里面去洗一下。”希罗亚在这里面，神学家告诉我们，其实这里面是有一个。啊、呃，一个字的一个啊、呃，很重要的呃解释的，这个希罗亚的意思就是奉差遣的。约翰福音在前前后后一直在告诉我们一点：耶稣说他是从父神那里被差遣来的。所以，一个从父神那里被差遣来到世上的人，对一个瞎了眼的人说：“我差遣你去到希罗亚的池子里面，去那里洗一下，然后。”他就回来看见了。后来告诉我们，很多人就看到这个神迹的以后，就非常的惊讶。他们说：“这个是以前就坐在这里乞讨的人，是不是他呢？”有人说是
。有人说不是，这个瞎子因为他得了医治，他就说是我。他们问他说怎么开的呢？是一个叫耶稣的人，他把泥抹在我的眼睛上，我去洗了，就看见了。瞎子在这里面得到医治，他是一个神机。它不仅是一个神迹，它还是也是一个标记性的神迹。旧约的圣经里面有大概讲了大大约二十个左右的医一个疾病得到医治的这些神迹，比如说民数记的二十一章，以色列人在旷野抱怨，神让火蛇咬了他们，很多人都病得要死了。然后摩西得了神的指示。把一条铜蛇挂在旷野里面，所有看这条铜蛇的人都得了医治，所以这是一个得到医治的一个神迹。在列王记下面五列王记下的第五章里面，也有一个非常著名的一个神迹，一个亚兰王军队的元帅，名字叫李乃曼，他得了全身的大麻风，不肯好。后来他来到了这个伊丽莎先知的面前，伊丽莎先知都没有见他，对他说。你只要去约旦河里洗七次，你的病就会好的。他一听，不想做，因为太容易了。他说：“我不愿意做这件事情。”他身边有一个随从跟他说：“元帅，这么容易的事情，难道你不做吗？”后来他就去了约旦河里面洗了七次，他的这个大麻风就解禁了。所以旧约圣经里面有过很多的神迹，但是。旧约圣经里没有盲人看见的神迹，所以盲人看见一个瞎眼的，生来瞎眼的得看见，这个神迹是一个标记性的神迹。在以赛亚书先知里面这样说：“我耶和华凭公义招你，必搀扶你的手，保守你，使你做众民的约，做外邦人的光，开瞎子的眼，领被囚的出牢狱。”领坐黑暗的出监牢，这一段经文是关于基督的预言，所以在这里面有提到说他将来要开瞎子的眼睛，所以这个神迹不是一个普通的神迹，而是一个标志性的神迹。所以后来这个开了瞎眼的人，他讲过一句话：从创世以来，未曾听见有人把生来是瞎子的眼睛开了。所以这里面是讲到一个生来是瞎眼的人得到医治的神迹，但是这个瞎眼是身体上的瞎眼，也就是真正的这个我们所说的这个眼睛，它生来是瞎的。但是经文在后面要跟我们提到的是，还有另外一种的瞎眼，更加严重的一个一种瞎眼，就是心灵的属灵上的瞎眼。所以接下来经文就告诉我们犹太人。和这个瞎眼的人，然后和耶稣他们之间的对话，就把这种瞎眼给我描绘出来。所以，第一个阶段，这个瞎眼的人他得了医治以后，他就被带到法利赛人的面前。法利赛人就是那些宗教领袖，宗教领袖看到他以后，就问他说：“你的眼睛是怎么打开的？”他说：“这个人。”他叫我去西洛亚的池里面洗了一下，然后我的眼睛就打开了。法利赛人就分成了两派，一派说这个人不可能是从神那里来的，因为他不守安息日，因为耶稣医治这个瞎眼的人是在安息日。犹太人认为说，在那一天耶稣不应该医治病人
，所以他们说这个人不是从神那里来的。但是另外一派呢说，一个罪人怎么能够行这样的神迹呢？所以他们也是觉得很困惑，所以内部之间就有纷争。从这个时候，他们就转向那个鸭瞎子，对他说：“他既然开了你的眼睛，你说他是一个什么样的人呢？”这个瞎眼的人说。他是个先知，至少他知道他有这样的能力，能够来医治病人。至少他是一个先知，所以这是他第一阶段的认识。犹太人这个时候从他这里得不到满意的结果，他们就去找他的父母。他们找他的父母，然后对他说：“这个人是你的儿子吗？这个人是生来就瞎眼的吗？你们怎么说？你们能够告诉我们？”这他的眼睛是怎么打开的呢？他的父母听到了这个问题，然后就对法利赛人说：“这里面很重要的。”他这么回答说：“我们知道，这个是我们的儿子，我们知道他生来是瞎眼的，所以这一个我们知道。但是他的眼睛是怎么打开的，我们不知道。他们为什么说他们不知道？因为犹太人说了。”只要是有人敢承认耶稣是基督，就把他推出他们的会堂。所以，对犹太人来说，如果说要把一个人推出他们的会堂，就是不再接纳他作为一个犹太人，所以你就被孤立起来了。这是一个很严重的结果。所以，现在对于呃穆斯林来说，他们要信耶稣也是非常困难的，因为一个穆斯林他信了耶稣，他就会被他的族群给赶出去。所以，我最近听到一个人讲到穆斯林信耶稣的时候，对他们来说，他们的信、他们的洗礼是实实在在的。为什么说对他们来说洗礼是实实在在呢？因为耶稣说，这个人受洗就入，就是归入他的死，然后从洗礼出来以后，就是从死里复活了。对于穆斯林他们信主来说，他们知道，他们如果真的受洗归入耶稣的话，真的是归入耶稣的死了。因为他们被他们的整个族群就给孤立起来了，甚至严重的话，他们会丢掉他们的性命。他们从水里出来了以后，被接纳进入了一个新的团体，但是他们是除了这个团体接纳他们以外，从前的他们这些父母亲人、朋友、邻居都把他们给遗弃了，所以非常孤独的这么一种生活。所以在这里面。在这里面，他就是说了，他是他本来就是他父母不敢承认这个孩子是耶稣把他医治好了，他们就说他已经成年了，你们去问他吧。好了，他们又再一次的来到这个瞎眼的人面前，对他说：“先上纲上线，你要归荣耀给神。我们知道他是个罪人。”所以这个基调已经定好了，你要归荣耀给神。我们知道的，他是个罪人。所以接下来，这个瞎眼人怎么回答呢？瞎眼的人回答说：“他是不是罪人，我不知道。有一点我知道，我从前是瞎眼的，我现在看见了。我从前是瞎眼的，我现在看见了。”所以他已经接受耶稣是一个基督了，你就问他说：“这个是个罪人，对他来说
，他没有办法承认。我从前是瞎眼的，所以刚才我们这个唱诗歌里面，基恩典这句这些经文，约翰牛顿就把它谱写到他的这个诗歌里面：基恩典何等甘甜，我罪已得赦免，前我世上今被寻回，瞎眼今得看见。从前是瞎眼的，我现在。看见了，所以他是很清楚的，因为他经历了这么一个恩典，他知道他从前是瞎眼的，现在得到了医治，所以他不用人告诉他说耶稣是罪人。然后法利赛又问他，他是怎么打开你的眼睛呢？这个瞎眼的人说：“难道你们想要做耶稣的门徒吗？我已经告诉过你们了，你们怎么还要问我呢？你们这么一直的问我。”难道你们要做他的门徒吗？法利赛人说：“我们是摩西的门徒，你才是他的门徒。”然后他们接着又说：“我们知道，所以又是我们知道，我们知道神曾经对摩西说话，但是这个人他从哪里来，我们不知道。还是我们知道和我们不知道，我们不知道，我们知道神曾对摩西说话，但是。”这个人呢，我们不知道。他们只知道神曾对摩西说话，但是摩西的书对他们说了什么，他们不是很清楚。然后这个瞎眼回答：“他开了我的眼睛，你们竟然说不知道他是从哪里来。”所以这个瞎子跟他的对话中间，一直要让他们晓得说，这个神迹理应告诉你们耶稣的身份。你们从这个神迹里面，你理应看出耶稣是基督，但是至少他是一个先知。但是你们竟然一直说他是一个罪人。然后瞎子也跟他讲了一个：“我们知道。”瞎子对他说：“我们知道，神不听罪人。如果有人是敬畏神的，他是遵行神旨意的，这样的人神才听他。所以。”这个瞎子也有他的知道，而且他告诉犹太人的时候，犹太人应该也能够承认，所以他也给他们一个：我们知道，我们知道，神不听罪人的，神只听那些敬畏他、遵行他旨意的人。从创世以来，从来没有人能够把瞎子的眼睛打开。这个人如果不是从神来的，他什么都做不了。所以犹太人看到耶稣把这个。瞎眼的医治了，他们仍然拒绝承认耶稣是从神那里来的。他们这样的拒绝是因为他们的固执。后来，这个瞎眼的人就被他们赶出去了，就像穆斯林，他们信了耶稣被赶出去。这个瞎眼的人，他从前是瞎眼的，但是跟他们是很和睦相处。现在他的眼睛打开了以后，反而被他们赶出去了，就像穆斯林一样。他们一旦信了耶稣，就要从他们的族群里面被赶出来。赶出来以后，耶稣遇见他，就问他：“你信神的儿子吗？”然后他回答说：“主啊，谁是神的儿子，叫我信他呢？”耶稣说：“你已经看见他，现在和你说话的就是他。你已经看见我了，现在跟你说话的就是那一位。”然后。他就
对耶稣说：“主啊，我信，就伏伏下来拜他。”这个时候，耶稣就讲了一句非常重要的话：“我为审判到这世上来，叫不能看见的可以看见，能看见的反瞎了眼，不能看见的。”不能看见，就是这个瞎子，他原来是看不见的，但是他反而看见了。但是这里面的看见，不只是说他从前瞎眼的，现在看见了那么简单。在这里面，这个不能看见是指他从前是瞎眼的，在属灵上面，在心灵上面是瞎眼的。现在他能够看出，能够看见耶稣是从神那里来的，耶稣是神的儿子。所以耶稣他来了，他让这个从前瞎眼的。身体上是瞎眼的，人能够认出耶稣是神的儿子，但是那些能看见的反而瞎了眼。谁是能看见的？法利赛人。但是法利赛人是真的能够看见吗？法利赛人真的能看见吗？在其他的三本福音书里面，有提到一个马太。税吏马太信了耶稣以后的事情，这个税吏马太他信了耶稣以后，他就邀请他从前的朋友来到他的家，然后摆了宴席，请了耶稣和他的门徒一同吃饭。法利赛人就抱怨他们，对他的门徒说：“看你们的老师，他竟然和税吏还有罪人一起吃喝。”耶稣就讲了一句很重要的话：“健康的人用不着医生，有病的才用得着。”谁是健康的人？法利赛人。但法利赛是真的是健康的人吗？不是，他们是自以为健康的人。自以为健康的人不需要耶稣这位医生，自以为看得见的人也不跟随耶稣这世界的光。然后在路加福音里面还记载了一个耶稣讲的比喻：九十九只羊和一只羊的这个比喻。耶稣和税吏罪人常常在一起，法利赛又抱怨了。抱怨的时候，耶稣就跟他们讲了这个比喻：有一个人有一百只羊，但是有一只羊丢失了，还有九只在旷野里面。然后他就把这九十九只就放在旷野去找那一只羊。那一只丢失的羊是谁？那九十九只羊不需要被寻找的是谁？那九十九只不需要寻找的是那些法利赛人，是那些抱怨的人。那一只丢失的羊是谁？是那些愿意跟耶稣一同吃喝的税吏和罪人。所以在这几个故事里面，九十九只不需要寻找的羊，他们是不是真的是回家了？不是，他们也是迷路的羊。法利赛认为他们是健康的人，他们是不是真的健康的？也不是。他们也是有病的人。法利赛认为说他们能够看得见，他们是真是不是真的看得见？也不是。实际上他们是瞎子。但是在这里面非常重要的，耶稣在这里面行的神迹，他选了一个生来就瞎眼的人，他是有属灵的意义的。在我们我们所有的人，其实生来都是迷路的羊，生来也都是有病的人，生来都是瞎眼的。如果我们生来就是瞎眼的，就是盲人
我们怎么能够知道耶稣是世界的光呢？盲人是无法感知光的，盲人是不能感知光的，怎么知道耶稣是世界的光呢？所以，在约翰福音的第这第九章里面，耶稣医治了这个天生就是瞎眼的人，他先把他的眼睛给打开了，属灵的盲人无法认出耶稣是基督，是世界的光。除非耶稣行神迹，打开他心灵的眼睛。在一八八六年的时候，有一个牧师，西方的牧师，他的名字叫 William Haslam。这个牧师他在那那一年的有一天，他走上了讲台，读了一段经文，从那一天的福音书中间摘取了这么一句话：“你们。”怎么看基督？这是马太福音二十二章四十二节的一节经文。你们怎么看基督？是耶稣的问题。你们怎么看基督？在他那一天的讲道中间，他说：“我继续讲解这段话的时候，看见法利赛人和文士不知道基督是神的儿子，也不知道他来救他们。”他们要找一个大卫的子孙做王，照他们从前的样子来管理他们。在我的里面，在他讲到的时候，在讲台上面，他说：“在我的里面有一个声音一直对我说，你并不比法利赛人好。”他是一个牧师，他是一个牧师，但是在那一天讲台上面，他听到一个声音对他说：“你并不比法利赛人好，你不相信他是神的儿子，他来救你。”法利赛人不相信，你和他们一样的不相信。他说：“我感到一种奇妙的光和喜乐进入我的灵魂，我开始看见法利赛人没有看见的。”一个牧师，他已经做了牧师很多年了，但是在他的讲道中间，他没有，他首先没有感动别人，但是他首先把自己给感动了。这个感动是从他自己来的吗？不是。他说：“有一种奇妙的光和喜乐进入我的灵魂，这个光，这种喜乐从哪里来？”然后他接着描述：“我不知道那究竟是我的语言、我的态度，还是我的神态。但是突然，在那一天的聚会中间，一碰巧有一个当地的传道人，不是这间教会的当地的一个传道人，他就站了起来了，然后举起双臂，用当地人的口音喊道。”牧师信耶稣了，牧师信耶稣了，哈利路亚！所以这个当地的传道人听到他的这个讲道的时候，他突然之间能够感受到说，这个牧师信耶稣了。他从前站在这个讲台上面那么多年，但是他竟然不是信耶稣的。就在那个时候，这个传道人竟然有敏锐的，我相信这是一种从圣灵来的敏锐的知道说牧师信耶稣了。过了一会儿，他的声音就淹没在。三四百名会众的欢呼声和赞美声中间，他说：“我没有责备这种异乎寻常的吵闹，而是我也加入了这个赞美的行列。我发出了颂赞，赞美上帝，所有的祝福都来自他。接下来，会众就一遍一遍的用声灵、用声心、心灵和声音来唱着。有一些信徒就很惊慌，就急忙的逃跑了。但是，赞美的声音还在继续。”很多过路的人就走进了教堂，看看要什么事情发生
然后赞美的声音就更大了。后来，当这一切平息下来以后，他发现有至少二十个人在哭喊着求神怜悯他们。当那一天，这个牧师站在讲台上，他自己被圣灵开启了他的眼睛，他相信了主以后，很多人加入赞美。后来，有二十个人在这个会众中间哭喊着求神怜悯他们。后来他们都相信了耶稣，他们说，在他们相信的时候，都得到了喜乐和平安。在这二十个人中间，有三个是 William Hasland 自己家里的人。他说：“我们回家的时候一直赞美上帝。”所以，这个这个作者他告诉我们的，他在书里面描绘了他自己从一个牧师的职业里面，后来在讲台上面相信耶稣。告诉我们一件事情：耶稣把他的眼睛、心灵的眼睛给打开了。他一直在读这些经文，他读的不要太熟，但是就在那一天的讲道中间，他知道一点：耶稣是神的儿子。他真正的在他的心灵里面，他明白这一点。主耶稣有一个祷告，在他自己传道，很多人不信的时候，他的一个祷告。那时，耶稣说：“父啊，天地的主，我感谢你，因为你将这些事向聪明通达人就藏起来，向婴孩就显出来。当我们相信耶稣的人，是神把这些属灵的事情向我们给显出来，向什么样的人显出来？向什么样的藏起来？神把这些救恩的这么奥秘的道理。”向那些聪明通达人就藏起来，向婴孩就显出来。所以在这里面告诉我们，这个光它要能够使人明白是神自己的显明，是神自己的工作。所以今天这个生耶稣至少生来就瞎眼的，对我们来说非常的重要。我们和这个瞎眼的人一样，他是生来就是。物理的身体的眼睛瞎了，我们是生来心灵的眼睛是瞎的，我们没有办法知道看出耶稣是世界的光。当耶稣自己把我们的眼睛给打开的时候，把我们心灵的眼睛打开的时候，我们才知道他是世界的光。但是不管我们的眼睛有没有被打开，耶稣都是世界的光。道教、佛教。伊斯兰教、哲学、历史、科学，这些都不是世界的光。只有耶稣基督是世界的光。基督徒，所有的基督徒都是被耶稣基督打开我们属灵眼睛的人。我们之所以能够相信耶稣，不是因为我们比人聪明，这件事情不是人的聪明能够解决的。我们之所以能够相信耶稣，是因为耶稣基督把我们属灵的眼睛给打开了。所以，我们相信的人，首先我们要要做的、常常做的一件事情就是感谢。因为在这么多人里面，神只是让我们的眼睛被打开了，所以我们要像这个身体的眼睛、这个瞎眼的人，他的感谢和赞美一样，我们也要学习这一点，我们要常常的感恩。第二，我们要使用我们属灵的眼睛
，属灵的事情从前是向我们隐藏的，我们是不知道的。你无论读几遍的圣经，只有当耶稣基督把你的眼睛打开以前，在只有他把你的眼睛打开，你才能够明白这些属灵的真理。我们既然说我们的眼睛已经被他打开了，我们就要使用我们属灵的眼睛。有没有看到？人家一个人，他的眼睛是好好的，但是他整天闭着眼睛的，没有的，对不对？我们比方说，我们要出去，我们要去旅行，我们要去做事情，无论做什么，我们都要需要使用我们的眼睛。有没有一个世界上的人，他整天闭着眼睛的？不会。如果说我们基督徒是属灵的眼睛被打开的，我们就要去用我们的眼睛，你要去认识这个属灵的世界。这个属灵的世界是你用这个眼睛看得见的吗？不会的，这两只眼睛看到的是这个外面的世界，它是物理的，是身体的。属灵的世界是要用心灵去看见的。我们要想着，我们如果说我们出去旅行，我们要常常看看外面的世界多么的美丽，对不对？有没有想过说，上帝既然把我们的眼睛打开了，我们就要去欣赏上帝的美？要常常想说，上帝的美比这个世界上的美不知道超过多少。还有没有想过说，我们作为人，我们有眼睛，我们出门的时候，我们要寻找道路，往哪里走，往哪里走，对不对？我们有这个眼睛，就不需要像盲人一样用盲杖。作为一个基督徒，我们既然知道说我们属灵的眼睛被打开了，我们也需要去寻找道路，走什么样的道路？有一个姐妹。她在怀孕以后，怀孕的时候她正好感冒了。感冒了以后呢，她后来觉得说，我怀孕了，我又同时我感冒了，感冒呢，她又不知道她怀孕了，她就吃了这个感冒药。她觉得吃了感冒药以后，我这个孩子生下来很不安全，所以后来她就去堕胎了。那你想，这是一条正确的道路吗？还是一条错误的道路？我们属灵的眼睛没有打开的时候，我们随便随便的乱走，随便你随便走。但是你既然说你的眼睛已经被主耶稣给打开了，你是一个得救的人，你的眼睛打开了，你认识属灵的奥秘，知道神的旨意，那你行事为人可以随便乱走吗？我们又说基督徒读经，读圣经应该是基督徒的喜乐的事情。诗篇第一篇说。他的喜乐，喜乐是在神的律法里面，他昼夜思想神的话语，因为你的眼睛被打开了，所以你应该喜悦读神的话语。你的眼睛被打开了。我们又说基督徒服侍，基督徒服侍奉，在教会的服侍，在人群中间的服侍。我们既然知道我们属灵的眼睛被打开了，我们就应该知道说服侍是我们很重要的一部分。所以下个星期六大扫除了，教会要、啊。所以我希望说，国语堂弟兄姊妹，因为知道说我们的眼睛被打开了，我们有很多弟兄姊妹能够参加到这个大扫除里面来。因为为什么？因为你的眼睛被打开了，你知道侍奉的事情是很重要的。个人不单顾自己的事情，要顾耶稣基督的事情。如果你没有打开，好，你就做你的事情好了。但是你既然你的眼睛被打开了，如果你有空，你应该不单顾耶稣基督的事情，不单顾自己的事情，也要顾耶稣基督的事情。那么，对于我们这些已经打开人是这样的教导，我们同样也说一下，神怎么打开人的眼睛
，神怎么样打开人的眼睛？属灵眼睛怎么打开的？刚才我们讲到说，这个耶稣基督他用这个饼，还有这呃这个泥和水，他的唾沫活成了这个饼，涂了他的眼睛，然后他去一洗，他就打开了。那神是怎么打开人的眼睛的？使徒行传二十六章，主耶稣基督对于这个保罗的话说：“我猜你到他们那里去。”要叫他们的眼睛得开，从黑暗中归向光明，从撒旦权下归向神。又因信我得蒙赦罪，和一切成圣的人同得基业。所以，耶稣基督差遣保罗一个很重要的任务，差他们差他到这些外邦人中间去。首先，第一个重要的事情就是开他们的眼睛。但是他是怎么样打开人的眼睛的呢？保罗没有做别的事情，传道。当他传道的时候，当他靠着圣灵的能力传道的时候，传扬耶稣基督的福音，在那个时候，圣灵就在工作，圣灵就超自然的打开人的眼睛。所以，我们知道神怎么打开人的眼睛：神让圣灵和信徒同工，信徒去传扬耶稣基督的福音，圣灵就在那个时候就超自然的把他们的眼睛打开。所以，圣徒需要做什么？第一，被圣灵充满，圣灵需要。信徒需要有圣灵的恩高和能力。第二，利用各样的机会去传福音，因为神的灵和神的话是一起工作的，去打开人心灵的眼睛。我们都有亲友没有信主，所以我们有很多的交集。我们要明白一点，问题在哪里？他们之所以不愿意信主，不能信主，是因为他的眼睛，他的心灵的眼睛。他属灵的眼睛没有打开，怎么样解决？这个解决绝对不能靠我们，靠什么？神的话和神的圣灵一同的工作。所以我们要做的是圣灵的充满，神的话语的传讲，然后祈祷求圣灵工作。只有这样的方式才是正确的方式。在我们中间，如果说还没有信主的朋友，我也不能对你说。你你赶紧相信吧，你你你为什么还不相信呢？因为我知道，当你的眼睛没有被打开的时候，怎么能够相信呢？但是我有一个很非常好的建议。马太福音十一章二十五节这里这样说：“耶稣说，父啊，天地的主，我感谢你，因为你将这些事向聪明通达人就藏起来，向婴孩就显出来。”所以，如果说，你有你希望说能够像基督徒一样，能够去明白，能够去相信。至少第一点，第一步，不要做一个聪明通达人。什么是一个聪明通达人？聪明通达人就认为说，我所知道的一定是对的。犹太人认为说，安息日不应该医治，所以他们一切的都是围绕这个。不管你耶稣行了多少神迹，首先没有通过我的这个神学检验。所以你肯定是罪人。我们如果说，比如说我们是从无神论里出来的，无神论一定是无神论，一定是对的。好，聪明通达人。但是如果说是一个婴孩的话，他至少谨慎的去想想，说我从前这些理论是不是对的？耶稣是世界的光，凡跟从他的就不在黑暗里走。但愿神恩待我们，使我们每个人的眼睛都打开，都来跟从他。我们就不在黑暗里走，让我们一同祷告。
。天父，我们感谢你，神啊，你是我们的救主，神啊，你差遣你的儿子来到世上，主啊，他要来打开我们的眼睛，他来了，他就是世界的光，他来了，他要打开我们的眼睛，神啊，求你来恩待我们，主啊，叫我们能够相信你的恩典，也带着。这样的信心，主啊，去到人群中间，来传扬主耶稣的福音，开他们的眼睛。神啊，我们中间如果说还有人没有信主的，神啊，求你自己来光照，主啊，求你自己来行神迹，打开我们心灵的眼睛，因为我们知道这我们的眼睛打开不是我们自己能够做的，主啊，求你满满的主啊赐下怜悯和恩典，听我们祷告，奉主耶稣名字，阿门。